0: Good evening, everyone, and welcome. My name is Charles Stang, and I'm the director of the Center for the Study of World Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. Welcome to the CSWR's annual Hindu View of Life Lecture. This annual lecture aims to address the current and urgent issues of our time from a perspective informed by insights and values arising from Hindu traditions, both of India and of Hinduism globally. The inaugural lecture took place in 2016, and the series is meant to evoke the memory of Dr. Sarvapalli Radhakrishnan, who spoke at the opening of this center in 1960. It's a distinct pleasure to welcome my friend and colleague, Dr. Shravana Borkataki Varma, to deliver this year's Hindu View of Life lecture. She is a historian, an educator, and a social entrepreneur. As a historian, she studies Indian religions focusing on esoteric rituals and gender, particularly in Hinduism. As an educator, she's currently a lecturer here at Harvard Divinity School, and also at the University of North Carolina Wilmington, where she teaches introductory courses on world religions and higher level courses on Hinduism, Buddhism, religion and film, and history of yoga. As a social entrepreneur, She is the co-founder of a nonprofit called Lumen Tree Portal. Dr. Borkataki Varma invests in building communities with individuals from various faith backgrounds who believe in kindness, compassion, and fulfillment. She received her PhD from the Department of Religion at Rice University. Her lecture this evening is entitled, The Hindu Margins, Third Gender and Women Spiritual Partners.
1: Thank you, Charlie, and thank you for the generous introduction and for this invitation. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Um, So when Charlie called me, and this should be sometime, I think, in January or February, and asked me if I would give the annual lecture on the Hindu view of life, instantaneously, my thoughts went to whose view? Whose life? In other words, I asked myself, who is a Hindu? Whose lives and which viewpoints is Charlie referring to? Do we have the same understanding of what may be our Hindu identity markers? This then led to another set of questions, which Hindu will I speak for today? And in doing so, who am I excluding? I identify myself as a hybrid Hindu, a term I came across in Hugh Urban's writings. Further, I'm an insider with an outsider lens. By this, I mean, I'm a scholar of Shakta Tantra, which is uh, loosely understood as goddess Tantra, focusing on esoteric rituals and gender. At the same time, I'm a practitioner. I was first initiated into the Karma Kamakya lineage sometime around the age of eight or nine, and then took my second level Diksha, which is initiation at about 14 and 15. For the two decades post my
2: initiation,
1: I was simply a practitioner. I had Absolutely no idea that one day I would become a scholar of my own tradition and my dissertation would end up being a sort of an autoethnography. I graduated in 2016 and over the last now almost five years, my deepest struggle has been around how do I write about my own tradition in a way where I critique certain ritual practices, codes and rules, which are phallocentric for a large part, yet not reduce or be apologetic about them. As an initiate, I swore to secrecy, which brought up deeper questions on what I will make public and what will remain private. I finally arrived at a point wherein I continue to keep my vows, but not at the cost of subverting voices, especially the ones that are marginalized. The two groups of Hindu I I will speak about today are people I care for very much. We meet when I visit India, which was as recent as 10 days back. We are Facebook friends, we live on our phones through the WhatsApp, which is highly popular these days. Yet the irony is that these very people live a life that is largely hidden in what I call the Tantra veil, an invisible and complex set of moral, ritual, political, religious, social, and gender codes that pushes for a large group of people to live a life of liminality. Allow me a few more minutes of introduction here. It is imperative to contextualize my agency in this very world of Goddess Tantra because I'm often asked the question, how and why did I get access? I am from Assam, a state in India globally known for its tea, I was born a Hindu, raised a Hindu, but it is not until the last decade and a half that I asked the question, who is a Hindu? My two classes here at Harvard Divinity School last fall brought forth fascinating conversations pertaining to our lecture today. The Hindu view of life from the center and how does that view look like when you're at the margins? And it is the margins that I mostly work with. These very discussions today are also deeply steeped in political, cultural, and social rhetoric. The Twitter and the Instagram worlds are not necessarily spaces steeped in love and compassion, especially when one is asking questions like, who is a Hindu? Who gets to speak? And for that matter, teach traditions, Hindu traditions at universities? Hindu religious pride today is tightly intertwined with national pride. This merging of identities and and pride in being a Hindu and an Indian is not just a phenomenon in India, but is well present in the diaspora. Two examples come to mind one from the summer of 2020, amidst the pandemic lockdown, the heated debates over Times Square in New York being lit up with images of Lord Rama and the proposed design of the temple on the groundbreaking day of the Rama temple in Ayodhya. And from 10 days back, as I passed through immigration at Delhi airport to return to to the U.S., the immigration officer asked me what I did for a living. It's like a standard protocol. They want to check if, you know, you are really the person you say you are. So when I told him, I was a scholar of Hinduism, he wanted my phone number and he said, and I quote here, we, ne- we never grew up thinking, what is Hinduism? We were born Hindus and we remain Hindus. But now there is so much of discussion everywhere in India. And I feel like a fool because I do not know how to define my own religion. I know very little of its history. We were never taught in school or went for any religious classes. I want to learn more, but I do not know where to begin." So I'm not here in support of a way of Hindu thinking. Today, I'll speak about Hindu view of life from the lens of the third gender called kinners, colloquially called hijras, a pejorative term. The second group I will talk about are spiritual partners in scholarship categorized as consorts. My research is primarily from two temple communities in India, Kamakya, which is in Assam, and Tarapeet in West Bengal. And it's important to mention that these are temple communities. These are not the temples you would find, um, the smaller temples that you would find on uh, several streets or intersections if you have been to India or for that matter, Nepal. In addition to being an initiate, I'm fluent in three languages, Assamese, Bengali, and Hindi, which helps me a great deal with regards to access into these tight knit spaces. I've divided this talk into three subsections. I will begin with a brief overview of my usage of the term Tantra and Shakta Tantra, and then I will move to the two groups I want to speak for, the kinners and the spiritual partners. So let's begin. What is Tantra? The term Tantra is probably one of the most fiercely debated and still unresolved within academia as well as in the public arena. The modern day imaginings and understandings of Tantra are complex and the roots as one of my students here at the Divinity School aptly said last fall, it's unpinnable and I love the term unpinnable so I do have her permission to use it. The term Tantra stands for many different elements of Indian religions and Indian religiosity and is widely used in hindu Buddhist, Jain traditions. Over the last, over the long history, the three religions have enriched each other's understanding of the term, yet there are distinct discontinuities in understanding between these religious traditions. So the term Tantra appeared in the Vedas, Rig Veda, Atharva Veda, around sometime around 1500 to 1000 BCE, meaning warp or loom. In Satapatha Brahmana, around 1200 to 900 BCE. And I am using a quote from forthcoming article of Paolo Rosati and I quote, Tantra took on the far more abstract meaning of essential part or framework Whereas in the Mahabharata, around 500 BCE to sometime around 500 Kamar era, it meant doctrine or scientific work. There are several other usages of this term with a wide range of meanings from manuscripts written on palm leaves, governance, and so forth. Etymologically speaking, Elizabeth Bernard proposes a rather creative solution, which is to use the emic and the most popular understanding of the term within Tantra communities. Many contemporary Hindu ascetics define Tantra as action done with the body, tanu, for the purpose of protecting, bringing about release, tra. One etymology of Tantra divides the word into two roots, tan, to stretch or expand and try to save or protect. By combining these two roots, Tantra means the increase of methods available in order to liberate oneself from cyclic existence. Ideally, these methods should be efficacious and expedient. In short, the term Tantra does not have a univocal meaning, preserved throughout the religious histories of South Asia. What we can say and have largely come to agree upon is one, Tantra is developed out of prior mainstream, but not necessarily elite traditions. Two, Tantra is a body of religious practices that evolved through similar phases both within India and throughout its expansion into greater Asia. Three, for any given period of time, there has been a certain level of uniformity to the practices. So all this is great, but we still need a definition, more so if you're going to use it, which takes us to what is tantra and what it is, what it is not. So let me share two definitions. One is by Andrew Pideaux, who expanded uh, and borrowed from Madeleine Berto. And for Andrew Pideaux, it is an attempt to place karma, desire, in every sense of the world in the service of liberation, not to sacrifice this world for liberation's sake, but to reinstate it in varying ways within the perspective of salvation this use of karma and all aspects of this world to gain both worldly and supernatural enjoyments, bhakti, and powers, siddhi, and to obtain liberation in this life. Mukti implies a particular attitude on the part of the tantric adept towards the cosmos, whereby he feels integrated within an all-embracing system of micro-macro-cosmic correlations. The second definition um, is, was proposed by David Gordon White. And for uh, White, Tantra is the Asian body of beliefs and practices which working from the principle that the universe we experience is nothing other than the concrete manifestation of the divine energy or the Godhead that creates and maintains the universe seeks to ritually appropriate and channel that energy within the human microcosm in creative and emancipatory ways. So like my colleagues, I too had to either come up with my own definition or use a definition that applied really well to my work. So I chose the definition of not a very well-known scholar, Prem Saran. So for all Prem Saran, and therefore by using his definition for me, Tantra is the term that stands for certain distinctive practices of a ritualistic and sometimes magical character. Example, the use of mantra yantra, meditation diagram, chakra, nodes on the central axis of the inner visualized yogic body, for example, the kundalini, Shakti or female power that is visualized at the base of the yogic body in the form of a goddess of that name. These practices are used as means to reach the goal of either spiritual emancipation or of more mundane aims, mainly magical domination. So I'm gonna stop sharing my screen here. Next is the term Shakta Tantra or Goddess Tantra. In Devi Mahatmya, which is a fifth, sixth century text, portion of the Markandeya Purana, the ultimate reality in the universe is understood to be feminine. Devi is simply not the knowledge that sets one free, but also the great illusion, Mahamaya, that keeps one bound. It is only through the Devi's grace that one can act at all. In other words, Devi, which is the goddess, is the primary ontological reality. All exist through her body. She is the great deluder, and she is the one who redeems her devotees by incorporating them into the life divine. In short, she is the effective agent on earth, and cosmos is not masculine, but feminine. She is Shakti. Douglas Brooks refers to Tune Guardian's definition of shaktism, which is well accepted by most scholars, as it encompasses many elements of that constitute the term shaktism. So I'm going to share my screen again. Shaktism is defined in different ways. Sometimes it is incorrectly identified with the cult of female, ident- of female deities in general. It can be shortly characterized as a worship of Shakti that is the universal and all embracing dynamics which manifests itself in human experience as female divinity. To this should be added that inseparably connected with her is an inactive male partner whose power of action and movement the shakti functions. It is therefore not enough to say that a shakta worships the female as ultimate principle, nor is it correct categorically to say shaktism is characterized by the use of the five prohibited substances. In the shakta sect, proper the shakti is the chief divinity. Although shaktism is often divine, also by means of typical ritual practices, it is advisable to restrict the use of this term for a worldview oriented towards shakti, while tantra should be applied to a conglomerate of ritual and yogic practices and presuppositions. While definition is simple and encompasses almost all aspects of shaktism, It's important to note that Gautin makes amply clear, not all shaktas are tantrics. Similarly, there is no one understanding of the goddess. Visual representations, texts and attributes such as gentle or fierce, benevolent or malevolent, mother or warrior, and so forth also worth mentioning is that a majority of these beliefs and representations are subject to geography, sectarianism, historical and political developments laced with oriental imaginings. So I'll not spend more time in these two terms here because you've seen how I will be using Tantra and what is my understanding of Shakta Tantra. So let us now move to the two groups I'll be speaking about, the kinners and the spiritual partners. Who are the kinners? Kinners are the same group of people who are identified as hijras in India. Hijras are a heterogeneous group of individuals, the LGBTQ+, and the various gender identities are not being currently used by this community. Since they operate under a homogeneous umbrella, hijras of yesteryears and kinners of today and possibly the future, I too am using it in the same manner. In other words, I do not and will not try to subcategorize them into different gender categories. Daniela Bevilacqua refers to Matthew Boyceford in a forthcoming article that the term Hijra is associated with the Arab Hijra departure, the term which describes Muhammad's exile from Mecca towards Medina in 622 Common Era. The word Hijra would then refer to a gender displacement, a movement whereby an individual shifts from being a male to female gender. Ship Shankar Mal, in his 2015 uh, writings argues that Urdu word hijra is derived from the Arabic root khajr, which means leaving one's tribe. This large group is aptly defined by Serena Nanda and I do want to share her definitions. I'm gonna share my slide again here. Given the large and complex society of India, the Hijra community attracts different kinds of persons, most of whom join voluntarily as teenagers or adults. It appears to be a magnet for persons with a wide range of cross-gender characteristics arising from either a psychological or organic condition. The Hijra role accommodates different personalities, sexual needs, gender identities without completely losing its cultural meaning. Androgynous narratives in the Hindu religion are well-rooted. Quoting from Wendy Tarniger and her work published in 1980, where she discusses the presence of androgen figures in the literature. And I quote, the true mythical androgen is equally male and female at the same time. They have some sort of equivocal or ambiguous sexuality and that disqualifies them from inclusion in the ranks of straightforwardly male or female. These liminal figures include the eunuchs, the transvestite or sexual masquerader, the figure who undergoes a, undergoes a sex change or exchanges his sex with that of a person of the opposite sex. The the alternating androgen, male for a period of time, female for a period of time, is what this group would largely mean. During my field work, I often found the members of the community narrating stories from two epics or using Chaitanya as an example. Let me briefly share these. The first one is from the epic Ramayana. Before going to exile, Rama told the males and females of Ayodhya to go back to their homes. But he did not include the people who were neither men nor women. They remained and waited for him to return. Post his return, he thanked them for the devotion and bestowed upon them the power of wish fulfillment. In other words, it is believed that the words of a Hijra have the power of becoming reality. Hence, people fear their curse and seek their blessings. The second story is from the epic Mahabharata. The nymph, Urvashi, fa- fell in love with Arjuna, but he clapped his hands over his ears when she propositioned him, for he said she was like a mother to him. Furious, she cursed him to be a dancer among women, devoid of honor, regarded as a non-man eunuch. But Indra, the father of Arjuna, softened the curse and made it valid for only a year. Years later, when it was time for Arjuna and his brothers to hide in disguise, Arjuna put on woman's clothing, though he failed to disguise his hairy and brawny arms and told his brothers, I will be a eunuch. He offered his services as a dancing master to the women in the harem of a king. The king was suspicious at first remarking that Urjuna certainly did not look like a eunuch, but he then ascertained that her lack of manhood was indeed firm and so let her teach his daughters to dance. Another off-narrative story, although I have to say this is more popular uh, with the kinners that I spoke with that come from Bengal or further east, uh, is that of Chaitanya. Chaitanya was regarded by some as an avatar of Krishna, but by others, including himself, as an avatar of Radha. Thus, it is said that Krishna became Radha in form of Chaitanya in order to experience what it was like to be Radha and to make love with Krishna. And he became Krishna in Chaitanya's body in order to make love to Radha. While such stories are well transmitted, the fact is that there is an ontological difference between saying God is androgynous versus God is androgynous. Further, as succinctly put by Ellen Goldberg, in the context of Ardhanarishwara, the status of male Shiva half is privileged by the title Ishwara, which then would be understood as God, Lord or Master, whereas the female Parvati half, whom Shiva shares his body, is simply designated as Nari woman. I, like many others in India, grew up with the kinners. They were in the street corners asking for money in exchange for blessings. You can find them even today. Members of the community just magically show up if there is a wedding or a child is born. Now, wedding is kind of, uh, you know, understood uh, because th- these are large events, so one can tell that there is a wedding in the family, but I've often wondered how they would come to know if a child has been born, especially more so if the child was not born uh, at the house and if it, if the child was born in another city, but to the same family, only then to know that they have an ex- Intensive nat- uh, network uh, that they maintain with the ironing lady, with the drivers, with the security people, um, you know, with the corner uh, pawn and cigarette shops that are quite um, popular in, uh, in India. But my first introduction to the larger community, community was when I worked for Gender Training Institute in Delhi back in 1999 and 2000. <clears throat> We had won a large project to train and educate the members on safe sex and diseases that get transmitted through unprotected sex. It was only then that I entered a Hijra household, although they operate more like what we would understand as clans. These households have stringent rules and elaborate structures defining different members and their roles. While I was very far from experiencing their roles in Shakta Tantra space, it was abundantly clear that the Hijra commune functioned both as a residential as well as an economic unit. The units are run under very strict guidelines and surveillance, and while the members contributed both physically and monetarily, the collective household provided the members protection from law enforcement and from the larger society who kind of treat them with a lot of scorn and also a lot of times they're met with violence. Leaders of the commune are mostly Muslim, thereby a kinner must first convert to Islam as documented by Gayatri Reddy in her work in 2005, while simultaneously accepting the Hindu goddess Bahuchara Mata as the Kuladevi clan goddess. It was during my PhD field work that I noticed the relevance of kinners in the rituals, especially fertility rituals within the realm of Shakta Tantra. But even then, uh, when I began my work, I did not really, I started noticing them, but I had not really made any forays with regards to the community and getting access. This does not go to say that kinners are unique to, sh- to Shakta Tantra. This liminal community includes the eunuchs and the transversites. In other words, they're considered neither lopsidedly male nor female. If they're not eunuchs by birth, they must undergo nirvana, wherein their penis and testicles are removed and a small part of the incision is left open because it is believed that after the release of the male blood, the individual is reborn as a receptacle for the parts of Bouchara, Martha, their clan goddess. I will return to this shortly in the context of fertility rituals. While hijras lived in the community, they did not take public stage. And this is back then. Uh, Their public stage was more in the context of wedding, childbirth and so forth, but not so much a public stage in terms of fertility rituals. They came from the societal fringes and went back into the shadows. But 2016 marked a significant change. Under the leadership of Lakshmi Narayan Tripathi, that's the lady on your screens, Kinners appeared as a group at the Kumbh Mela Festival in Ujjain. And by the way, this is the same Kumbh Mela that is under, under its way as we are speaking today and will end, I think, on the 21st or the 22nd of this month. And for the first time in the known history of Hindu religion, they were un- organized under the flagship of Kinnar-Akhara. Before I move further into the content, I do want you to pay close attention to Lakshmi Narayan forehead. What you will see are three horizontal lines, a red circle and a red vertical line. So keep this in mind because I will be coming back to it uh, very shortly. The Hindi term akhara means wrestling arena from which akharia derives meaning, master fighter, skill maneuverer, or strategist. There is a network of akharas throughout India, particularly in the north where men train in wrestling and other methods of fighting. But sometime between 1540 and 1647, Hindu religious akharas were formed. J.N. Farukar in 1925 reported based on anecdotes that Madhusudan Saraswati, who lived sometime between 1540 and 1647, a well-known Vedanta philosopher, approached Akbar to seek advice on the protection of an order to which he belonged from harassment by armed Muslim fakirs. Long story cut short, the recruitment of Nagas into organized fighting units appears to have occurred around the same time, although it is unlikely to have been in response to attacks by the Sufis. The leaders of each Akhara form from what is known as Akhara parishad. Until the advent of Kinnar Akhara, akaras were completely dominated by men. Think of it as a radical, hyper-masculine, warrior ascetic groups created by ascetic groups for the consumption of men, created by men. Several attempts have been made by many female ascetics to have a woman akhara, but they have been unsuccessful and have been met with fierce opposition. Um, so the formation of Akara marked the beginning of a new era in the lives of kinners. So here I'm going to share a video. It's about two minutes, but it is from uh, 2019 uh, when uh, the kinner Akaras became formally uh, kinner akharas. So I'm going to share the video next.
2: Bayagraj in Uttar Pradesh is all decked up to welcome devotees for Mela, which is expected to be attended by people from across the country and more than 5000 NRIs. On Sunday, Kinnar took out the first Peshwari or Devatva Yatra at the Prayag Rajkum. Thousands gathered to have a glimpse of this historic procession. The Akhara Mahamandaleshwar Swami Lakshmi Narayan Tripathi was sitting atop a camel. With Tripati, hundreds of transgenders from across India participated in this Devatva Yatra. Whenever the procession stopped, thousands of onlookers approached the rats to take blessings from transgender saltos. They were all lined up to get the selfies clicked with them. Akhara's Mahamandaleshwar claims to have adopted Sanatan Dharma. Tripathi has been fighting for the rights of LGBT community and also been a major part in protests and debates against Section 377. The Kinnar Akhada is yet to get recognition from the Akhara Parishad.
1: All right. And sorry once again, uh, you know, the joys of technology. Sometimes they, when it works, it's magic. When it doesn't, it always creates some confusion. But as you saw in the video, it says that uh, the Kinarakara, um was still waiting to get recognition from the Akhara Parishad. This was 2019 at the beginning of the Kumela, but of course, by the end of it, they will be recognized. So in 2019, what you saw was large gatherings of people who came to witness the entry of the Kinner uh, Akara into the group, uh, at that time, not an Akara, but the Kinner group into the Mela grounds. Uh, the procession, again, as in the video, was led by Lakshmi Narayan Tripathi. She was riding a camel uh, and had a sword and hand. And it was Giri, um, Hari Giri Maharaj, the head of Juna Akhara, who included the Kinnar Akhara among the Juna Akharas and signed an agreement declaring the total independence of Kinnar Akhara. And this is uh, also mentioned in Bev forthcoming article. So this is the time, this is a moment in time in history. So we're talking of 2019. So three years back when Kinnar Akhara's are formally recognized by Juna Akhara. And this has never happened in the history of Hindu religion in terms of Akhara inclusion and uh, including non-male members and giving them that kind of a status. Um, So I have just a few more pictures to show, Uh, no more videos, so this won't be a problem. All right. So they greet, um, so when it comes to the Kinarakharas, the greeting is now Jai Sri Mahatal. And the Kinara Tilap, the markings on the forehead, and that is what I was also uh, talking when I had shown the image of Lakshmi Narayantharapati, was made of three horizontal lines, typical of Shiva followers, with a vertical red line at the center, symbolizing the feminine, the Sri, and a big red bindi. So what you see are uh, on the top left of your screen is this classical three horizontal line, red bindi and vertical red, but there is also some level of art um, allowances that you find on the field. So what you find on the bottom left of your screen is another variation and the right is another variation. Uh, and this is interesting because they are very intentionally integrating Shiva and Shakta into their uh, understanding and how they are now going to be seen and how they will represent themselves in this Hindu milieu. Uh, the leaders today are called Mandaleshwara or Mahamandaleshwara as you again heard on the video. Now, this is a classic process of Sanskritization, a term that was coined by the sociologist Emin Srinivas in 1952. Sanskritization is a well-known theory in the anthropological and the sociological literatures in India. Sanskritization is a widespread social and cultural phenomenon that has occurred through the history of India and continues to happen as we see with the formation of Kindar and their identity marker and greetings. It was also in 2019 in Kamakhya at the Ambubachi Mela that I met a large group of Kinnar Akara members. With respect to antiquity, Kamakhya surpasses most of the shrines in greater India and those in eastern India. Most scholars agree that Kamakhya dates to the 8th century and continues to be one of the oldest and most revered of the early seats of goddess worship. This temple complex also epitomizes the retention of many ancient practices. The Shakta Peters in general and Kamakya in particular represent a complex interaction or negotiation between mainstream Vedic or Brahmanic traditions and indigenous elements from the pre-Hindu areas of India, as also mentioned by Hugh Urban in his 2010 uh, work. Additionally, a unique feature of the larger temple complex of Kamakya is that each of the 10 Mahavidyas, the wisdom goddesses, have a temple dedicated to their own practice. And the complex also contains a temple for Shiva and Vishnu, respectively. Further, unlike most Hindu temples, none of these goddesses are represented in imagery. Goddess Tripura Sundari, one of the wisdom goddesses popularly known as Shodashi and or Tripura Bala is the primary goddess in Kamakya. She's also recognized but the name Rajarajeshwari, although Rajarajeshwari mostly comes in a very specific ritual context. One of the central rituals in Kamakya for Shodashi is the Kumari Puja. Textual references to the worship of Kumari Devi, that is the prepubescent girls is found and that's the image that you're seeing on your screen. For example, is from the Devi Bhagavata Purana. While the essence of Tripura Sundari as Shodashi in Kamakya is kept in the exoteric, the essence as Rajarajeshwari is retained in the esoteric, mostly understood within the context of Tantric rituals involving sexual fluids. Red being the female sexual fluid, white semen, the union of the two. Rajarajeshwari is primarily performed during Chaitra Navaratri, which by the way, started yesterday and uh, will end again, as I said, either on April 21st or 22nd, depending on time and date. There are several important festivals celebrated in Kamakya, but one of the most unique is the Ambubachi Mela. Ambubhachi is the celebration of the yearly menstruation of goddess Kamakya. In 2016, it was estimated that 2.5 million people attended the festival, which numbers steadily growing every year. The temple remains closed for a period of three days since it is believed that the mother earth becomes unclean. On the fourth day, rituals are performed after which the goddess regains her purity. While for three days, the goddess is secluded due to perceived impurity induced by menstruation. The prasada on the fourth day is distributed to the devotees in two forms, the menstruating fluid part of the body, in this case, water from the spring, which is red in color, small pieces of cloth, red in color, which was used to cover the yoni during the three days of menstruation. So, the while, so while the goddess herself is impure due to menstruation, the fluid menstruating blood and the blood-soaked cloth are believed to be blessed substance, which encapsulates power and delivers protection to the devotees who either wear it hidden in a talisman or keep it in their home shrines. In other words, the goddess is impure, but the substance believed to be coming out of her body is pure. Since 2016, there has been a steady rise in the number of kinners that visit Kamakya for Ambubachi. In 2019, there was a significantly large congregation. At, uh, congregation and at sunset, they, they would come out in procession dressed beautifully. and. And, and it was hot and humid and and i you know if you look at my pictures by the time it was about 4:35 4, p.m. i looked like a tomato i was melting but they looked gorgeous they looked so beautiful and they they came out and there was this beautiful procession the crowds grew Larger by the day, because it's a three to four day festival. So, you know, there are lots of people over those days to get pictures and watch the procession. While the crowds loved it, there was a palpable tension between the kamakya deos. These are the priests that are mediators between the devotees and the kardas and the kinners. One Mr. Sarma called them charlatans and claimed that several of them were involved in sexual and criminal activities. Another Mr. Sarma was certain that the Kamakya board of trustees would act to ban them from coming to future Ambubachi Mela. A third chap chirped in to openly mock them. He resented the popularity, which, is directly, which also directly translated into monetary gains because when uh, devotees would go to them to get their blessings, uh, they would also give them some money. So, you know, it was seen as an income loss by some of the uh, priests in Kamakya. While most devotees, and I'm going to stop my screen here. So while most devotees sought the kinners for their blessings, I noticed patrons requesting them to perform fertility puja, which was rather fascinating. As I've written in several articles, fertility is central to karmakya. It is, after all, the yoni that is at the heart of the temple. In 2019, early 2020, before the COVID lockdowns and this March, which when I was in India, I have documented some of these pujas and interviewed a few members of the community as well as uh, the the Mandaleshwaras. In reference to the fertility puja, the kinnars perform for couples who do not have children. The kinnar first invokes Mata, that's their clan goddess, and through her body, it is believed that the goddess gives a boon to the couple. The kinnar performing the puja places one coconut, wheat, and rupees one, one rupee and 25. Pasa, which would be like a quarter cent, but not equivalent, in the jholi, which is kind of a bag made either of the scarf, the dupatta that the lady is, has put on her or the end of the pallu, which is the end of the sari that is flowing. In return, the patron promises to make the goddess and thereby the kinners happy by offering puja if his, um, his wish is fulfilled, And of course, this involves a monetary and material gifts. According to one of the Mandaleshwaras, sometime between yesterday and April 22nd, and I tried to call them today, uh, this morning, but I, uh, you know, I wasn't uh, able to do so. In Ujjain, Kinnarakharas will perform the Putra Kameshti Yajna, which is performed for the sake of having a child, more so a male child, which according to her has not been performed in this Yuga age. So the reason I was calling them is because uh, given the rise in the COVID cases, I'm not sure if they will do it this nine days or they will do it in October. So I wanted to confirm, but anyway, uh, I couldn't make the contact. So that is uh, what they told me uh, in March um, of 2021. Yuga is the cycle of four worlds, uh, the ages, and we are currently in the Kali Yuga, so she said that Putra Yagna was last performed in the ancient time when, upon the recommendation of sage Vashishta, King Dasarata of Ayodhya performed the Putra Kameshti Yagna. After its successful completion, the Lord of Fire, Agni Deva, appeared and gave a bowl of sweets to the King of Ayodhya, which was provided to his three queens to promulgate his sons, Rama, Lakshmana, Bharata, and Shatrughna. This will be followed by the laying the foundation of what she called, and I quote, largest and the most magnificent Bahuchara temple in Ujjain. So performing the Putra Khameshti Yatna is a significant move on the part of the kinners. And as I said, whenever they do it, because by doing so, they make their role in fertility ritual mainstream. So I'm eagerly waiting to see what kind of press coverage they get and what kind of acceptance they will get. And this is, as we speak, this is history in the making. My hypothesis is that by performing a public Putra to Yevna, kinners are strategically bringing an acute focus on how by virtue of sacrificing the individual fertility, they have the ability to give universal procreative powers. So now let me move to my second group of people, the spiritual partners. Unlike the Kinners, to my absolute dismay, I was completely oblivious of the existence and their highly liminal and largely invisible group. It was in 2012, Yet again, as part of my PhD dissertation, I met two sisters, Gorima and Sundarima. That was the first time I was introduced to the world of spiritual partners on the liminal space of the cremation crown of Parapet. And then much later in 2014-15 is when I read uh, Lucinda Ramberg's uh, Given to the Goddess. In the Brahmy, in the Brahmyamala, a text composed between Mits uh, Mid-7th century, 8th century, Sanskrit words for uh, women such as three, vanita, nari, and abala, abala are used. Shaman Hartley's article that came out in 2019 further elaborates these terms. In some cases, these may apply to female practitioners, in particular, highlights the frequent occurrence of abala powerless, a member of the weaker sex, suggesting that this usage contrasts the powerless condition of womanhood with the possibility of apotheosis through Tantric ritual, a transformation from abala to a state of divine power and autonomy. More often, the Brahmyamala employs terms which specifically spe- specifically intimate a woman's status as an initiated practitioner, principally Shakti, Duti, and Yogini, and secondarily Bhagini, Bhairavi, and Adhikarini. So I'm gonna. Um, Bhagini is understood as Tantra sister, but Adhikarini in the text is occasionally used in the sense of women entitled to the Tantra teachings by initiation. Duti is used in alteration with Shakti, the female messenger between. In other words, a female companion that is ritual consort exclusively in the context of sexual rituals. Continuing to refer from Hartley's article, a passage in chapter 45 of the Brahmya depicts the ideal dhuti as accomplished ritualist. Beauty uh, appears among her desired qualities, but this is not expressed in particularly erotic terms. Given that this, is, uh, this talk is in the public arena, I'm intentionally not sharing the verses except one obtained by the command of the guru, lovely, possessing the marks of auspiciousness, who has mastered the sitting postures, possessing great spirit, purified by the true essence of tantras, devoted to the guru, the deity and her husband, unfatigued by hunger and thirst, ever steeped in non-duality, free of discriminative thoughts and lust, well-versed in trance, yoga and scriptural wisdom, steadfast in the observances after obtaining her, a man of great wisdom should practice what is taught in this ritual manual. So in this larger context of Shakta Tantra as introduced in Kamakya and Tarapeet, ritualized sex is a form of ritual diagnostics. Through which an adept seeks to gain a vision of his past lives to identify obstacles impeding his quest for Siddhi. The interviews with Gorima and Sundarima were conducted jointly in Tarapit in 2012 and then in 2014. They are half sisters and have been practicing Shakta Tantras since they were little girls. Gorima was seven years old when her. Parents brought her to a guru in Tarapit, West Bengal, and I quote, she says, I was mad. When she says mad, she means, you know, she had some kind of a mental illness and would get frequent epileptic attacks. My parents were poor. So they brought me here and they asked the guru if I could be cured, end quote. The guru observed her for a few days, as she says, and then the guru said cure was a possibility, but a very expensive proposition. And her family was really poor. So instead, her parents donated her to the temple. The guru took care of her by giving her medicines and many amulets to wear. In a couple of years, when Gaurima believed she was about 10 or 12, it's hard to tell age uh, because, you know, they forget. um, uh, He initiated her into the Shakta Tantra practice and married her to Lord Shiva. Her guru explained to her, and I quote, Shiva can come in form of any man. Your duty was to perform marital duties irrespective of the form Shiva took. End quote. In other words, she became a consort. After a few years, she brought her half-sister on the request of a guru and both consort serving the male tantric seeker. It was few years later, in 2015, I was introduced to spiritual partners in Kamakya, on the Nilachal hilltop. Within the Kamakya community, lives a group of consort. These women are highly trained ritual specialists, and they play an integral role in several rituals. One of them being the Rajarajeshwari Puja that I mentioned earlier on. They are living and breathing duties of the Brahmayamala, but here is the problem. For the larger society, dhutis are part of ancient Hindu past. For all practical purposes, they do not exist. Since they do not exist, the spiritual partners are relegated to the shadows of Shakta Tantra world and their disdain outside of the temple walls. So to conclude my talk today, The two specific groups whose viewpoints have chosen to highlight that of the Hindu kinnar and that of the spiritual partner. One seems to be progressing toward a more positive role in the larger community and the other does not. The life of a Hindu kinnar is rapidly emerging from the street corners to be legitimately recognized as a ritual specialist who has the power to bestow fertility and acknowledged if not possible in the future, honored position in the community. Whereas the spiritual partners of Shakta Tantra world remains to be obscure, unacknowledged, invisible, and yet they are regarded as vital to the Shakta Tantra ritual practices. Even so, for successful progress of the male tantric adept, thereby the spiritual partners, in my analysis, miss the moksha boat. That's it for today, thank you so much. And apologies for the little video glitch and I'm ready for questions.
0: Um, I'm I'm sorry, the lighting in my room is terrible. So uh, I hope you can see me, but um, in any case you can hear my voice. Shravana, thank you so much. There was so much in this lecture. Uh, and I have questions as do some of the folks uh, who've already submitted, um, if, uh, but, but often people take a few minutes to formulate these questions. So um, I'm sure more will come in here. But the first question I'd like to pose to you is from our friend and colleague, Frank Clooney. And he asks, given the current social and political debates in the U.S. about trans identity and trans people and their rights, has the current uh, and more conservative and politically charged tenor of public Hinduism in India today prompted any controversies about um, kinars uh, or hijras, their place in society, their acceptance, et cetera, uh, and uh, fueled by charges that they are not, uh, they're not quote, unquote, real Hindus?
1: Thank you, Frank, uh, for this question. Um, So, when we look historically, so we did have the Article 377 for uh, the longest period of time. Uh, And then um, this has been a very, I would say, uh, an active role and a very, you know, in a very positive way that we find lakshmi norayan tripathi the the real the the current leader the mahamandaleshwara of kinnarakara uh, she is you know she's been to the united nations she has spoken in many forums she is really and there's a lovely book by her called me hijra, Me lakshmi or me lakshmi me hijra something like that um, and and it really what we are seeing and as and it's new. It, it started really in 2016, but truly became uh, an akara in 2019. 2020 was the pandemic, so you know it's. it's We're kind of talking about two three years. But what we are seeing is, at least in the ritual space, the akaras. There is, of course, a lot of tension between the priests and the akara, uh, the kinna of akaras. But at least in the ritual space, what I have seen in the last two, three four years is definitely a larger acceptance of the kinders. Um, they, um, they are not necessarily being seen with that kind of scorn, but not every hijra becomes part of the Kinnarakara. So that's another thing to keep in mind because these akharas are very stringent with their rules. They're really strict, even to a point of who will speak to whom. I mean, they're 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 really controlled. So not everybody wants to live in uh, that kind of a controlled uh, environment. But uh, so you still have a lot of um, uh, the 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 the, uh, the on the street corners begging and so forth. So you still have them, but I think. There, it's shifting, and because again of the junakara giving the legally making kinarakara kinarakara, I think that kind of uh, lack of respect is going away, and I I I have seen more acceptance than rejection. So I I, I see a lot more positive direction that they are. They are working. And, and there's another, which I didn't want to get into in this, is also the kind of um, identity they're creating for themselves. So increasingly, I'm finding the Muslim part of their history, they're abandoning, and they're taking on this very highly shiva shakta identity from their marking, from their greeting, from uh, if, if and when they do this yagna. As I said, I wasn't able to confirm it this morning. Um, they will do it and they will create that temple. They will not create, they will build that temple. So those are all going to be uh, a big, I would say, step in the direction of acceptance and 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 kind of ritual um, authority when it comes to fertility rituals.
0: I want to follow up on that point about the conversion to Islam, because you mentioned that, and I didn't quite follow it, and one of the questions uh, pertains to it as well. Could you just explain for us again what is at stake in, uh, or the the logic behind Qenaars needing to uh, convert to Islam? Did I understand that correctly? And, and I suppose that also connects to this question of whether and how they are viewed as Hindu. As you're saying, some of them are shedding that identity of being Muslims. So could, could you uh, help us understand that better, those of us who are for whom that, for this yes. is entirely new?
1: So the head, historically, if you decide to join a kinder household, this is, I'm not talking of the Kara. The it becomes the more Hindu and so let's let's talk about it before 2019 okay yes. so before 2019 if you wanted to or more so 2016 so before 2016 if you wanted to be a part of a Hijra household the household that I worked with back in to 2000 the head or the uh the, the the leader or the head of the household the senior at uh, the, the the main portion of the household at the top would always be Muslim. Whereas, the, you know, you could, so you, you kind of take, um, you, you kind of, if you don't come from, uh, from uh, Muslim, uh, from Islam background, you would then also take on uh, the Islamic vows. So you do become Muslim at the same time you also take Bahuchara Mata, the goddess, uh, as your clan uh, goddess. So it was a very syncretic relationship. And, um, and this, this now, when I asked just you know, last month, and I said, because of the Kumbh Mela and all of this, um, I asked, I said, so, you know, you, your head of your household always used to be a Muslim had to be a Muslim to be the head of the household. Uh, Is it still so? She's like, yes, it is still so. And I said, but now we don't hear the Muslim elements anymore. You've become very outwardly uh, Hindu, your you know, your forehead markings is Hindu, your greeting is Hindu, your prayers are becoming more, and, and as Lakshmi Narayan Tupati announced in 2019, they are now Sanatani, so they are, they've announced they are Sanatani Hindus, so they have they have decided to consciously take on Hindu identity, Hindu identity markers. Uh, They're constructing the temple for Bahujara Mata, They are going to be uh, in this fertility space. So, while the, the, the Islam and the head of the Hijra household or the Hijra um, uh, household remains to be a Muslim, that will slowly and slowly kind of not be known. And even now, it's very unknown.
0: Oh, so, so you mean, well, I suppose my, my question is still uh, lingering, which is, it, do we know why and, and when this tradition began, where the head of a hijra household would have to, con- if they were not already uh, Muslim, would have to convert? What's what's the rationale for that?
1: So this was back, back, back in history. I have to look at the exact, but, you know, like really back in history, Um and, you know, Farukh, the 19th, you know, uh, where he also documents these Akhara's um, back in history. And I have to, uh, have to look at the date. But essentially. The Hijra community. Was a synthesis of Islam and Hindus. And for reasons some known, some unknown, the head of the Hijra household was always a Muslim. But now with the formation of Kinna we are shifting and we have shifted and that is what has happened.
0: I see, okay. Uh, let me ask another. Yeah, I
1: could, sorry Charlie, I can unruly. look up and uh, maybe later send you and we can send it to the uh, group who, uh, whoever wants yeah. to know the exact specifics of what happened, which year,
0: uh, that happened, and it began. Yeah. No problem. When you introduced the uh, first group, the Kinar, the hijras, uh, you, I believe, if I heard you right, you you said you were going to refrain from using the sort of the contemporary Western acronym LGBTQ um, and use these, uh, so to speak, the, the the native lexicon for 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 this category. When we watched the video. Uh, The commentator in English referred to um, the Canars as transgenders in the plural. And then also, I believe, said something about how this particular figure had done uh, amazing work for the LGBTQ community. So I'm wondering if you could reflect for us on how those two lexica or those two vocabularies are kind of coexisting In India, this Western, this kind of contemporary largely Western one and then so to speak this indigenous account of. So for
1: that we have to just compare the same news in a Hindi or in a regional language and in English. I see. Um, So when the same news is played in English there is, and, and Lakshmi Narayan Tupati is of course very well versed in I don't know if well-versed or not, I mean, but she's versed. She knows very well the different categories and she um, clearly is, uh, is is has made herself, uh, you know, has informed herself of these categories. So from time to time when she's speaking in uh, in English in the United Nations and so forth, she does use sometimes transphocytes and she used the LGBTQ as LGBTQ, but where, the reason why I am I, I I I am not comfortable using it because everybody that I asked on the ground they didn't know what and how do you differentiate between LGBTQ right they didn't know they they were like we are hijras and, and that's yeah. it right so for them they're hijras and it's this very oh. homogeneous category of hijras um, and 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 that is the reason why I feel ill at ease to then say, okay, X is transgender, Y is, you know, this, Z is that, because they're not using it.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm going to combine two questions, both of which have to do with the, the, the uh, spiritual consorts. Um, so so forgive me, this might be a little rough because I'm paraphrasing, but as you described it, Lord Shiva can show up in the the words of the priest uh, who welcomed that um, or who initiated that young, that girl into um, a role as a spiritual consort. He explained to her that Lord Shiva can show up in the form of any male. Um, And the question that follows from that is what makes these men Shiva? Uh, And do the consorts have any opinion on their duties to Lord Shiva? Uh, That connects up to the second question, which is, uh, do you regard the spiritual consorts in Shakta Tantra as consenting to the sexual rituals, or is it typically circumstances, like the ones you described, poor family looking for a cure that forces them into this condition? So I suppose there's a question of, to repeat like the criteria, are there criteria by which men do, can be seen as shiva, or as any man who appears, um, uh, you know, so is for these sexual rituals, are they uh, regarded as shiva? And then the second is about um, uh, the circumstances and and consent. So I'm
1: going to reverse uh, answer in the reverse order. Please choice, consent. I've come to understand them to be far, far more problematic than how we see choice and consent sitting in the United States and also in urban India. Choice and consent is very, very different in the world view where you are seen where, not seen where you understand it's almost like I call it the socio cultural DNA. when your sociocultural DNA drives a v- very a kind of understanding that it has immense amount of impact on your karma on your rebirth on on what will happen in the future not just for you sometimes for your entire kinsman you know for your entire family and so forth the concept of choice and the concept of consent becomes very 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 different so so let so we have to one consider that how are we defining choice and consent choice rather consent is I would say compared to choice, consent is a little more easy to 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 define and to ask. Uh, yes, it's not like they are um it's it's yes they you know they can deny uh someone so it's not like um so it's it's not like while when she was young, her guru said any man who comes, but who who will bring that man? The guru will bring the man, right? So it's not like you know anybody who has access to these concerts are very, very protected by the temple community. So it's not like anybody and everybody has an access. So you have to be on this path. You have to have taken initiation chances are you will have to have a same guru or uh, there is there is some access to these tightly knit communities where also it's not for mundane purposes. And that's another thing we somehow miss when we look at ritualized sexual acts, right? So it becomes very like, um, it is not for procreation. It is not for pleasure. It is not for any sort of um, um, you know, uh, meaningless activity. Ritualized sexual acts are very, very significant um, purposes. They are introduced in the path for very specific reasons. There is a lot of training that is involved. Uh, which involves a ton of bodily practices, as well as, as you saw in the description I showed, as well as breathing techniques, as well as you know, the whole thing why you're doing it. So it's not like I'm saying, and if, if that's what it came across, let me stand corrected. I'm not saying Shiva comes in many forms in any man, mm-hmm. it has to come through this rubric of shakta tantra of initiation of guru of um, going through years of practice where you may have reached a point where guru would say, okay, you need to experience this or you need to learn this for learning this, for this purpose, you need a sexual partner or a spiritual partner. And that's when they're assigned. So that's how it works.
0: Shravana, I wonder if you could um, spend a little bit of time reflecting on the connections between these two groups, because I, for one, um, missed that. I mean, most most of your presentation was on the kinar community and then a, a briefer treatment of the um spiritual consorts now I I, I'm, I I take one of your points to be obviously that any account of what the hindu view of life is you have to choose <laughs> which hindus you're talking about and, and you're highlighting these two um marginal communities in some cases um uh invisible or uh, nearly invisible communities. But what connects these two communities uh, other than their, their marginality?
1: Rituals.
0: Rituals, okay.
1: And even within rituals, it is the rituals either on one side, it is the rituals that best tell fertility or rituals that that rituals wherein the female bodies are are instrumental in accessing some of the sexual fluids that are extremely essential for um, for or, or recognition of those. Masculinity and femininity within an individual is extremely essential because in tantra the body is no longer rejected. In tantra, body becomes central. And we're talking of jivanamukti. We're talking about mukti in this lifetime, liberation in this lifetime. So the physical body that we are looking at is no longer rejected, and therefore, you know, comes the yogic body and so forth. So it's the ritual that connects the two, but. The argument I'm making and what I wanted to showcase from the Hindi view and both groups are Hindus is that the kinners, because of how they have taken on a public space, they are the spiritual partners, because for all practical purposes, they don't exist. Nobody talks about them, and you don't talk about them. There are no no akharas protecting them. There is no laws protecting them. How do we protect? How do we ensure um, minors don't get? Uh, how do we you know uh, protect children? None of that is being ever discussed because they don't exist. Mm-hmm. So if if you go, with they don't exist, and that they existed in the historical past, that's a that's a group of Hindu, largely women. Mm-hmm largely female, largely girls, who are then completely in the shadows of the Hindu life.
0: Maybe we have time for at least one more question, and I'm gonna combine two, and both of which have to do with colonial legacy. So it's very common today for students in, in introduction to world religions classes to be taught that the very category of Hinduism is a kind of colonial category that groups all these disparate traditions under one easily controlled category. Um, And I'm wondering if you could comment on the utility of the category of Hinduism for your own work, but generally, but also specifically in this case, how were these two communities, how has the interpretation of these two communities, the kinars and the spiritual consorts? been shaped by colonial um observers and uh and their legacy
1: um so yes so i completely agree and that's why you would not hear me um Use the term Hinduism or Buddhism or Jainism, anyism for that matter, uh, and that's why I specified very clearly that it is Shakta Tantra. Even in Shakta Tantra, I only work in the east of India, which is West Bengal and Assam. Uh, how the ritual space, the uh, the 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 scriptures, the practices that that are followed in that part of India. If I were to take it down south and I map it to the Vidya tradition, it would sometimes look like North Pole and South Pole, you know, it, it there would be just such a wide difference. So uh, it's extremely important that we do not use this larger category of Hinduism, Tantrism, or Shaktism, and so forth. We have to be very, very, very um, specific about what we are speaking. Um, in terms of the colonial um, or the Oriental colonial impact on the kinners and uh, and the uh, and the spiritual partners. Um, the spiritual partners clearly, there were laws that were made where Devadasis uh, were, um, you know, it's uh, were were abolished, so-called abolished from the temples. Uh, so there there was and, and and for all good purposes, those laws were created. Uh, and that in the last 150, 160 years or so, uh, as I said, the, the narrative shifted to they don't exist. There is, it, Dev Dasi's were that of the past, but we see from Lucinda uh, Ramberg's book, uh, from my work and several others that um, that is not true. They, they very much exist. We have Bolanapattacharya field note. I mean, there's so many, they exist. So, I think one of the things that happened is the laws that came that then got adopted by um, by India when it when it gained independence. I don't know if I can say there has been really uh, a, a colonial oriental treatment of the hijras per se. Um, I don't know. I mean, I'll have to look into it. I I don't know if I can, I I can talk from the law standpoint, but I don't know if I can really use that lens to say that because of these lenses, because of these um, orientations, you know, the hijras became hijras and, and were treated the way they were. I think they were treated for multiple reasons. And I think a lot of it came from within the Hindu tradition, came from what happened with status of women, for example, through a very long history of Hindu tradition. So I think uh, with the status of women, you know, the the non-man, the non-woman just got even more uh, pushed to the the bottom of the pile. So I think uh, Hindu religions for the longest period of time became um, the religion for men, written by men, for men, you know, consumed by men and so forth. Women were a uh, part of it, uh, but they had a very specific role. And, and so I, I, I think that's, that's what I would want to, I guess, conclude with, but I'm, yeah, I'll have to look. I'm not so sure about the oriental treatment of the hitras.
0: Okay. Well, we are at 6.30, and I want to say thank you for this fascinating lecture. There are many, many more questions uh, left uh, unasked um, and comments. So, and I want those of you who have posed those questions and comments to um, to know that we will uh, share those with Shravana, um, although, Shravana, you don't have any obligation to write them back, but just so you all know what questions and comments uh, your your lecture has, has posed. And um, but in the meantime, Shravana, I want to once again thank you for this fascinating presentation, and thank you all for joining us. And uh, please do look out for the next event uh, at CSW Arches next week. I think we only have two more public events this semester, so uh, I hope to see some of you there. Thank you, Shravana.
1: Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Be well.
0: Take care. Bye-bye.